But we're going to begin tonight with a reading from the Word of God. Listen here as I read it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm, not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag their heads saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breasts. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. For there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers have encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look. They stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen. You answer me. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him, but when he cried to him for help, he heard. Please bow with me in prayer. Father in heaven, here we are tonight. Here we are because this is a week where we remember the greatest event in all of human history. But more than that, God, we're here because we want to meet with you. We want to see your son Jesus lifted up before us. We want to see the depth of our sin. We want to see the conquering champion Jesus and what he did to overcome that great problem that all of us found ourselves in. And so help us to see him tonight, God. Help the preacher to open the word and show the living word. Help all who hear and all who listen to turn their gaze to this Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome everybody to our Thursday evening Passion Week service. This is known as Maundy Thursday, right? You maybe are familiar with that term. The term Maundy comes from the Latin word mandatum which we get the English word mandate or commandment. And really the name for this day comes from John 13 and John's account of the Passover meal and Jesus' teaching there. 
uh, on the new commandment I give you to love one another. Just as Christ has loved you, so you are to love one another. And so from that, throughout church history, we get this word Maundy Thursday. As a child, I never knew what it meant. I just thought it was some funny name. Or Who's Maundy? You know, what? He wasn't a disciple or something. But, uh, uh, but so be it. That's, that's where it comes from in, in this history. But uh, tonight, however, we're, we're going to turn our attention not to the Passover event. We're not going to have a chronological uh, series necessarily this week. Tonight, we're actually going to turn our attention to a passage that happened some six weeks before the Passion Week. And so this is found in Matthew 16. And to many, Matthew 16 is known for another event, a well-known event where Jesus, or Peter rather, confesses Jesus as the Christ. Roman Catholics uh, have built their entire empire really on misinterpreting this chapter. And Protestants, we've, we've spent really the last 500 years trying to correct it and pull people out from under this false teaching and where they build up the, uh, the infallibility of Peter and the papacy of Peter and all those things that happen here. But as I can hear you turning, and if you haven't, turn in your copy of God's Word uh, with me to Matthew chapter 16. We're going to uh, look at verse 21, but the big picture in this chapter is there's really four major scenes. Four major scenes that flow very well together. Matthew is an excellent writer uh, communicating a big point here and communicating uh, this chronology of Jesus' life. And so in verses 1 to 12, they form the first scene here. And you might title it, Testing Jesus, where the Pharisees and the Sadducees are working together, which is really uh, unusual. They were normally at odds together, but they were coming together against this common enemy in Jesus. And so they're working together and they're asking for a sign. They're testing Jesus. And his response is really quite profound because he's saying, well, the sign is right in front of you. <laughs> I'm the sign. You have need, you, the sign of Jonah is right here. You don't need signs and wonders. You're asking for something ridiculous because here I am. I'm the son of God. The second scene then picks up in verse 13, goes to verse 20. You might title this confessing Jesus. And this is the most well-known passage where Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. And he says, uh, upon you, I will build my church and, uh, and all that is in that passage. It's a tide changing passage. The Messiah is no longer a secret, you know, and, and uh, he's, it's been let out of the, the bag, so to speak. It's no longer veiled um, here. And so then the third scene, which we'll look at in, in greater uh, detail in a moment here, is offending Christ, verses 21 to 23. And here is he's, Jesus is teaching openly. And then he closes out the chapter with this fourth scene, beginning in verse 24, with following Jesus. This is what it takes to follow me. The cost of discipleship is great. It will cost you your life. And as I said here, four great scenes, four great passages. One, you know, this should be on the top 40 of any Bible passages that you know and are well familiar with is Matthew 16. But tonight we're going to concern ourselves with this third scene in verses 21 to 23. So let me read it here for us and then we will dissect it and uh, draw some application from it. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. 
But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Stunning words. A stunning rebuke. The scene in this probably takes place in Caesarea Philippi. We know for sure that the previous scene, they are in Caesarea Philippi. And where that is, is really on the northernmost part of Israel. It's a beautiful place if you've ever been there. It's one of the most majestic, one of the most lush, one of the most green places in all of Jerusalem or all of Israel. Down around Jerusalem, the Judean wilderness, and especially in southern Israel and the Negev, it's very dry, it's very arid, it's a lot like the Texas Hill Country, you know. Dry and uh, hot. Um, But they're in the northern part here, probably 25 miles or so northeast of the Sea of Galilee. And this is really the, the, the northernmost reach of Jesus' ministry. This is as far north as he travels and gets. And this is, this is a beautiful place, as I said. It's on the southeastern slope of Mount Hermon. And so it's, it's, it's beautiful, it's, it's incredible. But it's also a place of lots of pagan worship. There were many other religions that came there, and there was, there was, it's where one of the sources from the Jordan River comes out of this cave there, and so which is one of the reasons why it is so lush, because there's actually water there. There's a spring that comes out of the ground. It forms this kind of grotto of sorts, and so the water uh, comes out, and it makes it beautiful there. And so if you ever go to Israel, it, this should hopefully be on your itinerary to go there. And so it's a beautiful place. It's a strategic place that Jesus takes him and, and, uh, uh, to establish his deity, to establish that he's the Savior. And most likely they are still there. Okay? Most likely uh, we're not really told here that any time has passed from the previous scene. All we're told is that from this time or from that time rather than these things take place. And so they're probably still in this region. And so our scene for tonight now, with between here Jesus and his disciples, and then particularly between Jesus and Peter, then also falls into three parts. This scene has three parts. Verse 21, Jesus teaches his disciples. Verse 22, Peter rebukes Jesus. And verse 23, then Jesus rebukes Peter. And so let's look more closely here now at this. In verse 21, part 1 of this scene here, it begins with this phrase, from that time. And this is significant because it marks a shift in Matthew's focus. It marks a shift in in all of this gospel. Earlier in Matthew, Jesus came and he comes off. He comes teaching uh, the Jewish people how to live. He's doing many miracles, but then the Jews reject him. They reject the offer of the kingdom. And so beginning in uh, chapter 13, then there's an initial major shift to where Jesus begins teaching in parables. He's veiling what he's saying. He's making it unclear to the unbelieving, but only those with eyes to see understand what he is teaching. And so that is what has followed here in these chapters. In 13, 14, and 15, there are Matthew's records of Jesus teaching in parables to all anybody who would listen, but primarily to the Jewish people. And that happens then through 16. Then Peter confesses Jesus as Christ. He's, he's now out in the open of being the Messiah or the Savior. And so then Jesus uh, now begins to teach them plainly. He begins to show them who he is. He begins to, uh, as Mark says in Mark's record of this, to state the matters, uh, uh, stating the matter plainly. 
There was no veil. There was no obscurity in what he said. There was, there was no uh, confusion about what Jesus is going to say from here on out. And so Jesus then, he begins to tell them four very specific things that are going to happen to him in about six weeks from now. He's saying these things, he, he just begins to show, to point out, to, uh, to teach what is, what is about to come. And this isn't new information for the disciples per se, but it's just been less clear all along. Look back. Let's, let's just look at a, a little uh, uh, trace through Matthew here and see here that Jesus has referred to his death uh, quite a few times. This is actually the fourth time. Just flip over a few pages to Matthew chapter 9. And in verse 15, here again, Jesus is teaching, uh, particularly in this passage, he's teaching about fasting. They come, he says, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? And so Jesus teaches here, Matthew 9, verse 15, Jesus said to them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast. And so here, a veiled reference to his departure. All right. So he's told them, he's made this known. The disciples have heard this, that he is not going to be forever with them. The next reference comes in chapter 10 in verse 38. Look there. He's here again talking about the cost of discipleship, what it takes to follow him. Uh, a disciple not being above his teacher or a slave above his master, but we must follow in obedience. And so in this uh, uh, context here, chapter 10, verse 38, he says, And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And so here a reference to his cross. Here a reference to the mode in which he would uh, die. The next one comes in chapter 12. Turn over another page, chapter 12, verse 40. Again, here there's a desire for signs. The scribes and Pharisees, they're testing him. They're saying, we want to see a sign. He references the sign of Jonah again in, in this passage initially. He'll do it again in chapter 16. But 12, verse 40, like he says, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so referencing his death and his burial now, referring to it in his answer in a demand for a sign. And so these are more veiled references to his death and to what will happen towards the end of his life. But now with this shift, now with this turn and Jesus teaching openly, now when you get to chapter 16 in our passage tonight, turn back there if you haven't already, and Jesus began to show his disciples these four very specific things, that he must go back to Jerusalem, that he would suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and be raised up on the third day. And so the fact that he must go back to Jerusalem, specific, he's in the north, he's, they've got a, a long journey ahead of them, but it, they're going to have to make their way back south. They've been coming along with Jesus, going into the different towns, into the different synagogues, doing the different ministry that they've been primarily recently in the sea of, or in the Galilee region. And he's saying, we've got to go back south. We've got to go to the epicenter. We've got to go back to Jerusalem. And so he's referring here to his triumphal entry, right? We've got to go back into Jerusalem. What we just uh, commemorated last Sunday with Palm Sunday, when Jesus enters into Jerusalem with great cheers and shouts of Hosanna in the highest. But they're not going there for a party the whole time, are they? 
That's why it's significant. His next uh, prediction, he says, I'm going to suffer many things from these really religious people, from the ones who hold the the strings and who call the shots amongst the Jewish religion. I'm going to suffer many things. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to have these unjust hearings before Caiaphas. I'm going to be before this kangaroo court with Pilate. And so he begins to tell them plainly. He begins to show them. And I often wonder, what, what did he do in those situations? Did he open up to Psalm 22, which I read, to open our service? Did he take them to Isaiah 53 or other passages? How did he show them? Or did he just tell them these things? Hey, guys, you know, several weeks from now, we've got to go back to Jerusalem. And it's going to get ugly for me. And not only am I going to suffer, not only am I going to be beaten, not only am I going to be put through all this, this ludicrous trials and all these, these things, but I'm also going to be killed. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die upon this cross. I'm going to die a sinner's death. I'm going to die a vile death. But don't worry, because after that, I'm going to be raised again up on the third day. And so here Jesus shows them, he states very plainly that they've got to make the trip back to Jerusalem. It's going to happen there. I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and I'm going to be raised again. Isn't that the gospel? Isn't this Jesus preaching the gospel to them? Here I'm going to go amongst my enemies, and I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be beaten, I'm going to be ridiculed, I'm going to have my beard torn out, all these vile things that are going to happen to me, and then I'm going to be killed, but I'm going to rise again. Death will not hold me. My sacrifice will be accepted by the Father. And so this is the preaching of the gospel. Here's Christ's very detailed, clear, undeniable account of the things that would happen in his life in some six weeks from then. And so we know that this is clear. We know that Jesus was teaching them plainly based really upon Peter's response, don't we? That there was no fooling about here. There was no, uh, you know, laughing it off. Oh, yeah, right, Jesus. Or rolling of the eyes. Okay, he's up to that again, talking about these things. No, but Peter rebukes Jesus. He rebukes him for what he says. And so we know that there was no fooling about what he was saying. We know that there was no uh, uh, obscurity about what Jesus was teaching them. And so the contrast here in Peter's response to what Jesus has just said now, to what happened in the previous scene in verse 16, is very striking. Prior, when Jesus says, who do, who do you say that I am, the Son of Man is? And he says, you are the Christ. You know, he responds rightly in faith. But here now we see Peter responding in fear, right? One in faith, another here in fear. And so look at verse 22 with me. Look at Peter's response. Peter took him aside. Literally, he drew him near with special concern. He, he brought him near. He accepted him or received him. He embraced him. It's the same word here uh, uh, that when you see the Bible, it says to accept one another. Romans 14 and others, you know, those who have different preferences or different convictions, we're still to re- accept them as a brother and sister, just as Christ has accepted us. Well, here it's, it's the same word, but with a different meaning. Here it's with, a, with the intent to rebuke as opposed to the intent to embrace or rejoice with but so peter he brings him aside he calls him aside and then he begins to rebuke him saying you know god forbid it lord this shouldn't happen to you no way you know peter was he knew what christ was saying and he knew the implications but how audacious for peter to think he knows more of god's will than god's son knows of it right how audacious from what in the world is happening here you know, and I, I was just, as I was meditating on this, I was thinking, what would cause Peter to react this way? 
You know, what, what, why do we, any of us respond poorly to bad news? You know, these things are going to happen to you. You have X amount of time to live. Or, you know, these, this, it's not looking good, you know, for th- things in our future. Why do any of us respond poorly to bad news? Why do we respond in fear? We, you know, does he, does he respond in this way because he's going to miss his friend? Probably. You know, no, Jesus, we, you know, I've enjoyed these last three years of friendship. You can't leave yet. Is it the fact that the suffering made him uncomfortable? Quite possibly. You know, Jesus, you're saying some things that are, are that they just don't sit right with me. This, this, these things can't happen to you. You know, you've, you've been able to cure people. You've raised people from, the, you, you've done all these things. And now you're saying that you're going to suffer and be killed, you know. But whatever it was, it's all just speculation. Whatever it was, he was fearful and not trusting so to we, when we respond to these types of situations, he was responding in fear and not in faith. This great rebuke here is met then and is countered in verse 23 with probably one of the strongest rebukes recorded in all of Scripture from Jesus to anybody. Maybe it matches that Jesus has some pretty strong rebukes to the religious folk, you know, to the Pharisees. They get, they get most of Jesus' most strong rebukes. But here, too, Peter is, uh, is strongly rebuked, and he's rebuking even Satan working behind the scenes. And what's, what's interesting here about this rebuke, what what's, what's, uh, makes it so strong is because we, knew that, we know that Jesus knew why he came, He knew what must be done to accomplish it. And he was not going to be thwarted in accomplishing that very plan. For Jesus knew the purpose, the plan, and had the power to carry it out, right? And so we know these things about Jesus, and it's why Peter's rebuke is, is, uh, uh, to Jesus is so offensive to him. It's why he is, he's, uh, 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 responds so harshly here, because Jesus knows why he came. He knows what had to be done to accomplish it, and he was not going to be stopped. So the parallel here, there's interesting things here. Why, we may ask this question, well, why does he not rebuke Peter directly? Why does he rebuke Satan and it's interesting if you go back to another time where Jesus was tempted, back in Matthew 4. And how does Satan tempt Jesus when he says, I'll give you the kingdom here. I'll give you the kingdom without suffering. But Jesus knew Isaiah 53. He knew Psalm 22, and he knew that he had to be the suffering servant. He knew that the kingdom was not his apart from uh, dying, apart from this suffering that needed to take place. And so Satan tempts him there in the same way that is now being tempted in this passage of a kingdom without suffering. See, Satan too knew the purpose for which Jesus came. He knew the plan that was to to happen, but he lacked the power to stop it. All he could do was tempt Jesus and use Peter to be a stumbling block and tempt him in the same way. And so Jesus Jesus calls Peter rather a, a stumbling block, which again is contrasted with the previous section because there he called him the rock. He said, this you'll be the foundation which the church will be built upon. And so that rock that would eventually become a foundation stone in the building of a church is in this instance a tripping hazard. He's a tripping hazard to Jesus. Thankfully, Jesus, you know, in his omniscience, he sees this this tripping hazard and he goes right around it. 
He doesn't take the bait. He's not just walking along aimlessly. He's not aloof and on just a, a nice stroll on planet Earth. He sees the, the tripping hazard and he goes right around it. Not taking the bait. He's not going to take this kingdom without the suffering stone. And so, you know, it's interesting here. This, is, this really shows the, the scope of Peter's life, right? That he who uh, would be a foundation stone in the church, you know, the apostles are part of the foundation. You know, he who uh, and we ourselves, Peter calls, are living stones in, uh, in First Peter. There, you know, we sometimes these same stones, we become stumbling blocks, right? Paul warns us in Romans not to put stumbling blocks, not to be those things. But it's the reality. We, we can be. We can be. Peter here is as well. And so Jesus is rebuking him. You've got to get behind me. I am not going to take the bait. I will not be tempted. I will not be stopped from executing my plan. I am here for a purpose. I know the plan and I have the power to execute it. And so Peter, in this instance here, in in this whole exchange, in this instant, he is not supporting his friend in obeying God's will, but instead he's tempting him to waver in his conviction. We know, obviously, that Jesus doesn't give in. Amen? Right? This is why the writer of Hebrews can say of Jesus later that he was tempted like us, yet without sin. Because here he was tempted. He He knew God's will, and he was tempted to waver in it, but he did not. He followed in perfect obedience to the commands of the Father. Peter, in this instance, he's, he's looking to his own interests, right? He's looking uh, to, he's fearing what he will lose. He's fearing what it's going to cost him. He's not trusting the will of God. And the great irony of Jesus' rebuke in this, he's saying you've, set your, you've not set your mind on God's interests, but on man's. But the, what Jesus had just laid out, the plan for which he must uh, do, going to Jerusalem, suffering, being killed and raised again, that is in man's best interest of, of any plan whatsoever, right? There could be nothing more in our interest than Jesus to follow through with the plan and to accomplish our redemption, This is the gospel, isn't it? There could be nothing more in our best interest. Nothing more in our favor. Yet Peter's, he's looking to his fear. He's looking at what it's going to cost and what the will of God is going to do to his friend and to his own life and the discomfort that it will provide. How often is this true in our own lives, right? How often is this true that when we know what is right and we know exactly what God wants us to do, but all we can see before us is a long, hard and difficult road. All we can see are the painful conversations that we're going to have to have and the things that we're going to have to give up and sacrifice and the discomfort that lies ahead. And so in fear we fight back or we throw a fit or we don't do it at all. We try to run when all along following the right way, following in God's plan has been in our best interests all along. And so we embrace the hardship. We don't waver in our conviction. We continue to follow after Christ and what he would have us do. 
And so, you know, may God just give us eyes to see in those types of situations, right? May God give us eyes to see and hearts that want to obey when we face those types of temptations, when we want to waver in our conviction, when we don't want to follow the will of God, when we find ourselves in a Jonah-like position and God's saying, no, you need to go to those people. And you say, I don't want to go to those people. And then you get swallowed by a whale and it's not good. It's not good. So this is, this is an interesting example here. This is an interesting story. This is an interesting event that is recorded for us. And so I've just been thinking, why is, why is it important for us to know these things? How does this increase our faith to see this exchange? Jesus teaching them plainly. Peter responding poorly and Jesus giving a strong rebuke in reply. How does this ignite our worship? Look to Christ with me for the remainder of our time. Here you've seen the event. But now as we close, I want you to see Christ on display in this passage. I want you to see the living word at work in this chapter. Have you seen the living word at work in this chapter? You have. The living word is Christ. We have the written word in our Bible, right? But we know that Jesus is the living word. And so what is, what is said of Scripture in 2 Timothy 3.16? That all Scripture is inspired by God and it is useful for teaching, for reproving, for correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work, right? And so we know this is true of the Scriptures. But do you see Jesus doing every single one of those things in this passage and in the whole chapter of chapter 16? Jesus is teaching them over and over. He's teaching them the sign. He's teaching them in the, uh, that he is the Christ. He's teaching them of the things to come. Jesus is reproving Peter here. He's reproving him for his fearfulness. But he doesn't just reprove him, but he also corrects him and teaches them what is right. You need to set your mind on man's interests. And then he, and then he trains them in righteousness there in the, in the last scene and teaching them how this is how you need to follow me. You deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Forever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so the living word here is training in righteousness so that these men of God, the disciples, and particularly Peter, may be adequate and equipped for every good work, particularly the building up of the church. Because he's going to be the foundation stone. We know the other side. We see him fumble here. But then as, as he gets on the other side of the cross and the resurrection and the ascension, we see great things done in Peter's life throughout the book of Acts and all the apostles there. And so the living word is instructing them. He's and reproving them and correcting them and training them in righteousness. Not just in this chapter, but in every chapter. And so that's why we can say that the written word, the scriptures are these things, because Jesus himself has done these things. Secondly, look to Christ with me. Look to Christ. See Jesus knowing all that was going to happen. I've already said this. You know, he wasn't aloof. He wasn't unaware. John brings this up. That's a repeated phrase throughout John. Jesus knowing all that was about to happen. Jesus knowing what was coming. Jesus knowing uh, the things that were at hand. You know, he knew all that was going to happen. He knew the plan. He executed it accordingly. 
This is, there is no, oh, poor victim Jesus in the Gospels. It is only powerful, victorious Jesus, knowing what was happening and going exactly according to plan. He knew the events. He was fully aware. You and I don't know these things, you know. I have a a major change coming in my life, and I only know partially what's going to happen. There's a lot of things that are left uh, up in the air already. And I don't know these things, but I know the one who already knows. I know the one who knows the way ahead, and so too in your life. You may not know where to go. You may not know what is on the horizon for you, but you know the one who does know, right? You know the one who does know, and thus, third, look to Jesus here, thus Jesus can be trusted. Jesus can be trusted. Here he predicts four very specific things that are going to happen in his life down the road. And do they all become fulfilled exactly? Do they all happen according to what Jesus has said here in this chapter? You better believe it. You better believe it. So therefore, we can trust everything else that Jesus had to say. You know, if, let's say that, that uh, I came and I just predicted, you know, four things that were going to happen in your life in six, six weeks from now. I predicted the four things that would happen over the course of your last week of life. You know, that you're going you're gonna to come and you're going to lose your job. You know, you're going to be fired. And Monday morning, the boss is going to come in and he's going to say, you know, clean up your stuff. Can't, uh, we, we can't pay you anymore. You know, and on your way out, you're going to be ridiculed. You're going to be maligned. You're going to be laughed at. You know, people are going to be vying for your desk and they're going to want your different things and, and uh, they're going to laugh you out the door. And a few days later, you're going to come down with a sickness. And, you, you know, you're, you're going to have a heart attack and uh, you're going to die. It's going to happen that Friday. You're going to go to Peterson Hospital, be taken by ambulance there, and, and uh, it's going to happen. And then, uh, you know, Kerbal Funeral Home is going to come and take your body, and the next, the following week, you'll have a service, and uh, you're going to raise again, you know, or something like that. So let's say I told you that. And I said, that was going to happen to you six weeks from now. You would think I was ridiculous, right? I mean, you would think that I was outlandish. You're crazy. But then let's say all those things happened. All those things happened exactly according to what I said. Wouldn't you then, after you saw the proof of these things happening, wouldn't you then want to go back and see, well, what else did this guy say? What else did he predict? What else? What other promises did he make? If these things are, have come about and are true, and he has this perfect record in this way, then surely these other things are, are going to be true as well. You know, when Jesus said, I will build my church, do you think he's going to do that? You better believe it. He's guaranteed it. It's the only thing he's promised to be building now. So we too should be investing in this great work. When Jesus said, no one will ever snatch you out of my father's hand. You won't, you won't be snatched out of my hands. You think we can take his word at that and believe his promise? You better believe it. You better believe it. Jesus has a perfect track record. He has proven true to his word in everything that he has done and has already been fulfilled. And so those things that have yet to be fulfilled, those things that are currently at work in your life right now, you can trust Christ. You can trust him. You need not be afraid. You need not waver. You need not worry in these days. Everything is going exactly 
according to plan in Jesus' day and in this day in your life. Jesus can be trusted. Have you trusted Him? Have you put your faith in this Christ? He's the only one that won't betray you. He's the only one that won't let you down. He's the only one that's not going to abandon you. But will always be by your side. So we say here forth, look to Jesus here with me and see Jesus as the one who should be followed in every season of life. He should be obeyed and followed in every season of life, despite our mess-ups, despite our failures, despite our fears. Jesus doesn't expect perfection in these things. He doesn't expect perfection. He knows that sanctification is a process. There's no need to run and hide when you mess up. There's no need to cover yourself up in shame, but come and uh, openly confess it to Christ and be on with it. He can be followed in every season of life. He doesn't expect perfection, nor does He reject us. He may rebuke us, and He may rebuke the tempter behind us, but here we, we see the perfect example of Jesus coming alongside, uh, spotting biblical, unbiblical thinking in Peter's life, encountering it with biblical truth. So too you and I. We need to spot unbiblical thinking in our, in our minds, encounter it with biblical truth, and proceed accordingly and obey accordingly. Jesus needs to be followed in every season of life, in our greatest moments, in our shining examples, in the things to write home about, in the things that we would rather be left unmentioned, right? But Jesus is to be followed. He's to be trusted. He knows all that's happened. And last here, look to Jesus with me. Jesus was the willing Lamb of God. He was the willing Lamb of God. He told them plainly. He stated these things. He showed these things without any wavering. Without letting anything sidetracking him or throwing him off course or letting any other offer come that might uh, try to present a better way. No, he came determined. He came willing to accomplish redemption. He came determined and willing to make it possible that you and I might be reconciled to the Father, that we might stand, that He might rather stand in our place, bearing the punishment that we deserved. No, He came determined and willing to die the death that you and I should have, knowing that He would conquer death. And so, beloved, so beloved, who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? He is the Son of God, the Son of the living God, the willing Lamb of God. So as a response to these things, this seeing Jesus, this willing Lamb of God, Brian's going to actually come now and sing a great and powerful song about this willing Lamb of God.